VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? It is patience. What we have on offer just isn't good enough for them. It's not working. So this is actually a failure of innovation, not a failure of patience or resisting. It's just that we don't know what to do with roughly a third of the people who are diagnosed with depression. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, coming to you from sunny, surprisingly warm Oakland. Um, We have an awesome show for you this week. We are shrooming. That's right. So a few weeks ago, I traveled to Portland, Oregon. Because the state had just become the first in America to legalize the use of psilocybin, which of course is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And they legalized it for use as a treatment for various mental health ailments. That is the primary use, but also they made it very clear, even if you just think it'll quote-unquote benefit you, you can also try it. Now there are some pretty strict rules about how you can use it and where you can use it and it has to be supervised, etc., But it's really kind of opened the door for a potential new chapter for this drug that's been illegal, Schedule 1 narcotic in the eyes of the government for half a century. So passing this bill was a moment for this little cottage industry, which has slowly been gaining steam over the last few years on the back of people's work like Michael Pollan and others who argue that psilocybin for certain people with some very difficult mental challenges can really help and for those who have tried SSRIs and therapy and cycled through all the options and nothing works it's kind of a case of well why not why not give more options the one company that is really at the forefront of that change of that charge is Compass Pathways which is based in London and on the program today we have George Goldsmith who is the husband in the husband and wife team who founded the company Um, Now, Compass just went public three months ago. It is, amazingly, already worth $2 billion, and this is for a company that has no revenue, is still years away from getting something to market. They still have to prove that it works in clinical trials. But clearly, there's a lot of excitement, and, you know, a lot of investors are buying in. And for Goldsmith and his wife, their stake is worth around $800 million, which is quite extraordinary, obviously. So, will Compass become Big Mushroom? Is this the beginning of a whole new kind of era for psychedelics, a new option for people who are suffering, or will it just not work out at all? Who knows? But it is a fascinating look at a nascent industry, kind of like cannabis has done, but this obviously has some serious differences, but it's kind of coming out of the black market, potentially into, you know, medical settings, psychotherapy settings, etc. And so looking at that and just really how it has come together, how it has got this far and where it's going next. So with that, I hand you over to George Goldsmith, the co-founder and CEO of Compass Pathways. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
kind of kick off, can you just tell us how you got into <laughs> the, the, the business of psilocybin? Well, I think we're in the business of mental health, and we're starting with psilocybin. So I'll tell you a little bit of how we got there, and then maybe a bit more we'll chat about how we're, where we're headed. So I think you know, a fair number of people have heard our story, but I'll do a quick repeat for those who haven't, which is you know, my wife and I were busy doing a variety of things in our life. Our son became went off to university, became really incredibly debilitated with depression, OCD, anxiety. And we just didn't quite know what to do. So we, you know, reached out to friends and, and others sought therapy for him. And we thought, well, thankfully, we're in the US and we do have resources and access, which already separates us from many. And so how hard could it be? Well, it turned out to be really difficult, Danny, and really hard to find care that worked for him, therapy that didn't have tons of side effects. And it just was pretty grim, actually. Uh, he wasn't getting better. And, and the more we talked to friends about this, the more we heard their stories. And it just became kind of clear that this was not just our son, but uh, actually a much bigger thing that we had not really thought about or talked about with others, because there still is a bit of stigma, obviously. And so you had tried the SSRIs, the, the Prozacs, Paxils, all that kind of stuff. They're all of, you know, all different kinds of medications, different medications on top of them. And, you know, the side effects and kind of him being less recognizable, you know, and he can tell his story someday, but it's not our place to tell his story. But I think what it did for us is it really inspired us to look for perhaps some different approaches. And uh, in doing that, my wife, uh, Katja, who's a doctor, a researcher, spent her sleepless nights as a mom just looking at medical research. And one day in February 2013, she woke me up uh, and she said, I just read this article about psilocybin. You were in the 60s and 70s. What, what is this? Tell me about this stuff. <laughs> what do you know about this? And much I was, you know, I born in 55. So, you know, do the math, 1969, 1970, um, you know, was a teenager and yeah. really interested in this. And so I had to actually follow the research at that time because I was kind of a geeky teenager, not surprisingly. Um, yeah. But was there research at the time or was it just the recreational wave? No, of... no, there was a lot of research. Most people don't know this, but over 40,000 people participated in clinical trials with LSD, psilocybin, before the substances were pretty much banned at the end of the 60s. So there was mm. a very rich history of clinical research, and that's kind of where all this started. And that research was into, was it all over the map, or was it, presumably it was not specifically to what you guys are talking about, which is treatment-resistant depression. I imagine, given its newness, they were just being like, wow, this is this very powerful new substance. What can it do, or what does it do, what doesn't it do? Well, the early days were exactly that. And it was early days in clinical research, too. So prior to thalidomide, which was a medicine that actually produced very significant side effects, yeah. was a huge wake-up call and really formed the entire regulatory system for medicines today. That happened in the early 60s. So this was before that. And in those days, what happened is a company would come up with an interesting, quote-unquote, research chemical, something new that they thought might mm. have promise. And what they would do is they would put 
ads in the professional journals saying, you know, if you're a psychiatrist, we have this substance. It might be interesting for you to try. It has these characteristics and maybe you could, you know, we will provide it if you write to us on your letterhead and then you can give it to patients and tell us what it does. Uh, that was the nature of clinical research before thalidomide. I mean, some places it was a bit more structured, but, but not a lot. And so this is the form that took lots of case studies, right? Lots mm. of case studies. It was predominantly LSD, which was first developed in uh, the mid 1943, but uh, then late 40s, early 50s. And then yeah. psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, an active ingredient, not the only one, was synthesized in the late 50s. And that had less clinical research, but, but some. So there's history here. Yeah, And the history I was aware of in the late 60s was work that was being done with LSD and cancer patients, where mm. people were having you know, stress around the end of their life. And it was seen that this could give them a little bit of a broader perspective. And so there were studies actually sponsored by the U.S. government, the National Institute of Health, I think, at that time, um, where people were given LSD in a therapeutic session with a therapist to actually consider issues that they were stressed by in their life around uh, being terminal, having a terminal diagnosis. This is kind of what they call now end-of-life anxiety. Yeah, and uh, that was work that was being done at a place called Spring Grove in Maryland. And... Uh, Obviously, a lot of people have that, particularly when they're facing... Yeah, uh, when you know it's coming, so to speak. Yeah. Exactly. So from my point of view, you know, I was aware of that. And it started, you know, but I hadn't been aware of what had happened in the 30 intervening years, the 30 plus intervening years. And so that's what became really interesting to us. So Kachi saw an right. article written on OCD by someone named Francisco Moreno in Arizona, and it had a really interesting result. They gave different doses of psilocybin to people. And the day after, there was actually improvement in, in many of them with OCD, which is a very unusual result. Obviously, it didn't last forever, but it was an interesting early signal. So that led us to start looking at other things. Now, of course, through this period, we were also looking at diet, nutrition, a whole host of things. This wasn't yeah. our only focus. Just I want to stop you there. Yeah. So sure. Because a lot of people especially when it comes to their kids, if there's something really wrong, it's just like, oh my God. And, you know, you try everything, you leave no stone unturned. But then going from that to starting a company is not something a lot of people will do. So what were you doing or, or were you, had you started previous companies? Kind of what was your background? Were you like actually, you know, where you ended up, which is doing a company, you know, around this? Hmm. Well, it wasn't an overnight decision, for yeah. sure. It was more of an investigation. And um, so what happened for us is we started to meet a lot of the researchers doing this work. And it turned out there was a fair amount of it being done in psilocybin, the resurgence of psychedelics. Some people call it the renaissance. And we found researchers at NYU, at Johns Hopkins, UCLA, London Imperial, Imperial College in London, University of Zurich. There was a wonderful nonprofit out there called Hefter Research, and we spent time with Hefter and started to be connected to this research. And the more we saw, the more interesting it became. And so, but what was your job at the time? 
Oh, my job. Um, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so gotcha, you know right. we're, we're that's what I was getting. That's what I was getting at. Terminally yeah. unemployable. We just come up with ideas to keep us right. busy, and I've done a variety of different um, things in my life. My training is in a cognitive science and clinical psychology, and I've been really taken by different forms of collaboration. Early in my career, I built a company called um, Human Interface Group, which I sold to Lotus Development, focusing on collaboration and collaborative applications. Then I've done other things, uh, mostly at the forefront of innovation, often with interdisciplinary teams. And before, you know, while my wife, while our son was becoming ill and, and while we were dealing with that, I have another company I founded in uh, 2002, which is a collaboration between among business boards of directors and often regulators, looking at how can we have sort of better social good coming from organizations and better behavior, if you will, better conduct. And how do we work on the interface between regulators and the regulated? And so that's what I was doing. And I actually had spent maybe four or five years on that with the pharmaceutical industry and regulators and payers and health ministries on both, you know, both sides of the Atlantic. So I was kind of primed for this. My wife was a doctor. By the way, her first response to this was, how does she get to have a board certification in integrative and holistic medicine? That was her first port of call because mm. she just felt that she needed to look beyond her deep training as an internist and hospitalist. Yeah. So we both kind of applied our kind of background to this problem. And it quickly became clear to me that, and to us both, that we needed better solutions. That was so clear. The more people we talked to, the more frustration we heard. Things are okay in psychiatry for many people, but for a lot of people, they're just not good enough, right? Side effects and everything else. Because the the, the indication for which you are investigating currently is treatment-resistant depression, and there's a shocking number of people who have this, correct? Yeah, I, I think what became really clear is we decided that there could be some benefit, but we knew enough about regulation and development of medicines to know that it wasn't just about writing another two or three small academic studies. This really needed to be done at scale. And so that's kind of the journey that we started was how do we bring this to patients? Because our story isn't a, a story of sunsick, find magic mushrooms and create a mushroom company. For us, it was really much deeper than that. Huge amounts of suffering exist. Current treatments don't work for enough people by far. Wherever there's innovation, we should look. And if there are ways to create the evidence for society and payers to create access to that, great. We need more options. So we're about option generation and access, not about psychedelics. Just that psychedelics are a place that we started because it's a huge innovation. And so, I mean, to be crass about it, the total addressable market, when you're talking about people for whom the current options do not work, how many people are you talking about? Well, in depression, it's estimated 100 million worldwide. Wow. So, and I, I think that, you know, I, I'm always very concerned when we talk about markets of suffering at that level. So of course. I think that we often say internally that everyone has a story because the more people we talk to, it may not be your own story. It might be a friend, a family member, but kind of everybody does have a story about it not working well enough for enough people. So I think I should just say that, yes, we spent a lot of time before we even thought about a company talking to regulators and payers, people that had known in the past and shared the data. And then we asked them, 
look, if these data are basically directionally correct, where would you focus? And they came up with treatment-resistant depression. That's the 100 million I mentioned. Now, I want to be super clear about this. Mm-hmm. There's no one that we've met so far who is resisting treatment. <laughs> it's not like that. It's actually, yeah. I think, like as treaters, maybe we think they're being resistant. But as patients, what we have on offer just isn't good enough for them. It's not working. So this is actually a failure of innovation, not a failure of patients or resisting. It's just that we don't know what to do with roughly a third of the people who are diagnosed with depression. And so from that moment in 2013, when Katya reads the paper, to when you start a company, when does that happen? Well, we had a brief period where we thought we would just help advance things by doing more focused research projects. You know, so we had a nonprofit that we actually never even took anyone else's money. We were just busy setting it up to to get ready. And the more we learned, kind of we got to a point where we realized that that would just be kind of more of the same. And what was needed was something really different, which is, wait, there are 100 million people. How do you go after that thing? Are you going to raise donations to do that? Developing a medicine is a couple hundred million typically, and that's on the low side. So, you know, no organization had done that before at that scale, maybe for tiny, you know, smaller rare diseases. So that really sent us into a deep, <laughs> a deep reflection of, do we want to change our life? And around 2016, we realized that, yeah, we really wanted to make this available and we were willing to kind of change our life to go focus on this full time. And that's what we did. So about three years. So when you say change your life, what what did that entail? Were you living in London at the time? Did you? Well, I was living in London, but it was, you know, being chairman and CEO of another company, I hired a, another CEO, amazing guy at Tapestry, wonderful person I'd known for a while. So he took that over. But that, you know, what didn't happen overnight. Yeah. Uh, Katya was very involved in medical philanthropy. And so we had to kind of shift that a little bit. But the dedication to this is it's always been about patient access. And this is kind of what we think about, right? And it, we're so motivated because of what we saw and what we went through. And, our, you know, it, it just became clear that it was time to do that in 2016. You're talking past tense. So I presumably, um, did you try this treatment or did your son try this treatment and was it helpful? So eventually, yes. But again, the treatment isn't widely available. There's a very rich group of people who have done this underground and he happened to be in the Netherlands for his experience. But what really happened was that we found other innovations and what really helped was ketamine for him in his situation. Oh, really? And so, again, that's why the story could sound like, you know, it's all about magic mushroom. Yeah. No, it's actually, we're looking at promising things. Ketamine is out there, so no need to do more work on that. But psilocybin really had some very strong signals. So we thought that's an area to, to really make a contribution. What's interesting is that there is, you know, you mentioned it earlier, this kind of idea of a psychedelic renaissance. It feels like there's a lot of work that has happened to kind of change the stigma around this as like this, you know, scary psychedelics that hippies used to do. And then it was outlawed by Nixon. And then it was just kind of banished to the wilderness for decades. So I'm just curious, when you start, you launch a company, how hard was it to find the people who were like, I'm going to invest in this idea because it's not actually that crazy. And we feel like the moment is right. Well, 
like all things, you know, I think Gibson's quote about the futures all around us is just unevenly distributed. It's kind of applicable here. So while it was dark ages one place, it wasn't always dark ages. And I think that's the amazing work that was done with uh, Roland Griffiths and his team at um, Johns Hopkins, even in the late 90s. Um, and Rick Strassman did a first study with DMT before that that was approved. So kind of in the mid-90s, there were a few really very brave academics. Now, for us in terms of financing, we went off for a few weeks just to kind of took some time off before we made this decision to kind of say, are we really ready? And interestingly enough, over breakfast, we had we're off at a retreat and kind of just had struck up a conversation with one of the people at the retreat. And she said shortly afterwards, you know, my brother might be interested in this area as an investor. So we never even had, we hadn't even thought about putting together material, talking to any investors. We'd put a few million in from ourselves, kind of like doing this work. Um, we'd fortunately been blessed and successful in our prior lives. So we could kind of make things happen in this and did a variety of things. So but that really changed everything. So we had actually our core team of seed investors pretty much from the start before we even really sought external financing. It was just sort of, oh, wow. it just happened. It, so there wasn't a, you know, tons of knocking on doors. Um, so you met was, this lady's brother and he invested? Yeah. Well, actually, he, he actually met another person you've talked to, Christian Ongermeyer. Yes. Um, and since all this is public, you know, it was Mike Novogratz and Mike's sister. And okay. um, yeah. Mike said, this is the weirdest thing. She wrote a quick email to him. And then Mike came back and said, this is the oddest thing. I had this guy I know from my hedge fund, Christian Angermeyer, in my office today. And he was talking about magic mushrooms. And here I have a second thing the same day. This is absolutely crazy. And I haven't even thought about magic mushrooms since freshman year from Princeton. So, you know, that was his <laughs> thought. And and so, you know, this was interesting. And he said, look, if, you know, if Christian's interested, he knows more about this. If Christian's interested, great. And so that was our seed round done with. And then Christian brought in another good friend of his who likes big disruptive ideas, uh, Peter Thiel. And right. so that was the trio that uh, did our seed funding, which was uh, consummated in August of 2017. Did you have a moment where you looked around and be like, oh, this is actually, whoa, they say an anchor man. That escalated quickly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we had a different view of it, right? Our view is that we've never been involved with anything where kind of the right people show up exactly at the right time as if there's central casting involved yeah. <laughs> way beyond the, our pay grade. So it was part of the zeitgeist, I guess, part of what we were doing and how we were presenting this. You know, we're deeply appreciative of all the work and we're not coming from sort of the traditional psychedelic community. And so I think that has given some benefits, although deeply respectful of all the work that's been there, hugely respectful. But we came at it a little bit differently. And so I think that's been important in being able to get investors involved as well. That this is a serious mental health focus, you know, just happening to use a, a new type of breakthrough medicine. Well, that's what's really interesting. So you went public last year, is that right? Uh, went public in September of this year. September, uh, September of this year. 18th. I remember it well. Train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. 
location. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. The company is already worth $1.9 billion, which I did a little noodling around on the internet before, which would mean <laughs> your guys' stake is worth $800 million total for this idea, which is basically what it is still, which is kind of interesting for all kinds of reasons. But I mean, you're not making money yet. You're still testing. You're carrying out a big clinical trial. So I don't know if you could talk about that and kind of where that is and what where you are in the process of where you are today and get, actually getting this out into the world and being used by people. Oh, sure. So bringing a medicine to market is a very, very long, arduous process. It requires uh, huge amounts of studies, large studies, because if you think about what we're doing, what we're talking about is we're talking about providing access to just in Europe and North America, the populations are about 900 million people. Now, you have to be really careful and really thoughtful about well, who will benefit, who won't, what is the safety issues here. And all of that work really was never done. You also need to have a consistent substance, right? That's the same drug product, that's the same anywhere in the world, that's produced to the highest standards, it's approved. So there's a huge amount of work. You know, no mushrooms are harmed in our work, we like to say. You know, we've <laughs> synthesized this product. Um, we've developed it in a way that scales, that's pure, that's unique that can be made into a very reliable medicine like any other medicine that you, this is you have like access a, to. just like a pill. This will be, it's a capsule right now, and it'll probably yeah. be a capsule when we get through the research. So first, there's all of the work to meet the highest standards. And just the, the document that we use to take and describe this is and all the testing we do, the stability testing, the stability testing and what kind of container. It's very detailed, complicated. It's several hundred pages, right? That's our book that we take to regulars. It's continually updated. And that's just the starting point. And then you have to do testing in animals, even though this substance has been out there for a very, you know, hundreds of years. But yeah. in terms of even the early work done by Sandoz, another pharmaceutical company in the late 50s. They just didn't do the work that's required here in the 21st century to bring a medicine to patients at that scale. Yeah. So you're right. There is a lot of people who believe in this, obviously, because that's what they're investing in, that they believe that there's a need to transform mental health. Apparently, that's, you know, the, the growth that we've had in our stock since it's been on the market. But I think that, you know, right now we are doing all of those preclinical work. We're in what's called phase 2B, which means we're working with patients around figuring out what dose is the right dose, who benefits, who doesn't benefit, all the questions that will enable us to go into the next study. And I, I maybe we should talk a little bit about what is psilocybin therapy so everybody yeah. who's listening kind of gets that. There's a huge history of doing this work, psychedelic therapy. Uh, again, it started in the 40s and 50s, and it's kind of been perfected. And a few things have showed up in that. One is that don't do this at home, right? People can have difficult experiences. Those difficult experiences are often prevented or mitigated by good preparation. So you need people to be well-informed, thoughtful, and supported during the actual experience. 
And so that's the first step is really preparing people. The other thing that's interesting here in working with depressed patients in the 21st century, so many people are on medicines, one or more. Most often they're SSRIs or SNRIs. These are traditional antidepressants. And even if people still feel depressed and they're on them, they don't want to come off because they feel maybe they'll get worse. But those actually interact with psilocybin. So we also have to have people stop those. And that's not a bad thing if they're not working. And, you know, so people have to come off. They have to come off under supervision and careful supervision. Because we know that if people have them on board, then often the effects of psilocybin are muted. So we have to clear that out. The next step is what happens during the actual session. So people are, you know, supported. We listen, you know, the therapists listen. There's a therapist who's with them and meets with them and help prepare them. We have a little video we show about what to expect during a high-dose psilocybin experience uh, to help prepare people. And then they come into the clinic for the actual session. And this is a supervised session. Right now, it's two people, a therapist and a therapist assistant. And they sit with the patient. The patient comes in kind of, it's a chilled environment, more like uh, probably like a nice living room. So a couch or a bed, a couple chairs for the therapist, dim lighting. This isn't a bright white hospital room. Um, <laughs> people are, are then invited to put on eye shades. And then we have a specially curated soundtrack that we've developed. It's about seven hours long. And people are really invited to put the eye shades on, listen to the music. Specially curated soundtrack. Is this a, that's not actually part of the patent, is it? Uh, no, it isn't. And is this all instrumental? I know this is the stupid questions, but I think people are interested in this kind of stuff. <laughs> what kind of music is it? Until the very end, completely instrumental. Right. Because we don't want people to have stories. So, so the core aspect of so many people who are confronting depression, etc., often have a very well-worn story about their life. You know, they're unfortunate about the certain things. And, you know, they look at things kind of in a, a negative way. And it's not their fault at all. It's just that that's kind of what evolved over them. And so some people are see the world through rose-colored glasses. And there are people who see them through different colored glasses. So we don't want to have music that kind of that they're familiar with, that they kind of can sing along with, right? It's something different. And the role of the music is just to kind of create the sort of base to the experience. It's kind of like a soundtrack for this. And so what we do is people, after they take the medicine, they have this about 25, 30, 40 minutes, the medicine really starts taking effect. And, and people have a sense of maybe they may see little patterns of, in their vision, you know, like little geometric forms. The music may sound a little different. They may get a little emotional. And we just invite people to go with it. The therapists are there if they need support. But most of the time, it's just people are, are engaged in the experience. After about an hour, it becomes quite strong. And at that point, many people who are in the highest dose area or, or part, they start having a sense that it's almost that their ego sort of starts slipping away. Um, that the way they have seen their life kind of, it's okay, that's one interpretation, but maybe there's a different way I can look at my life. 
And this is a, a process of what people call the unitive experience, where people have a sense of being part of something bigger, something without all their stories and, and that kind of well-worn pattern of thinking. Some people even say at the end, you know, it got so quiet afterwards because I don't have that constant running narrative in my in, um, And they, they talk about the quietness. And so this goes on and uh, people have a kind of a, an intense, what many people call a peak experience of seeing the world differently and seeing their whole surf suffering differently. And then the medicine starts wearing off at about four hours and by six hours, they're pretty much back to where they started with a bit of a different view of things quite often. And we're trying to figure out, you know, who benefits from this, who doesn't, but it does seem to have an immediate and sustained benefit for a lot of people in terms of their depression lowering. And that's right. what's really interesting. That's why we have an FDA breakthrough therapy designation. Just to be clear, one dose, longer term benefit that starts immediately for many people. That's right. the breakthrough. From a business perspective, I think what's really interesting is that obviously you have a patent and I know that there was some resistance, but the idea was that like this thing's been around for 60 years and now you're trying to make a business out of this naturally occurring thing and oh, that's not right. And there's a, there's a whole community in the, I'll call it the psilocybin world who are like, no, this should all be, for lack of a better word, open source. People were filing saying this was quote unquote prior art and you had to reduce the novelty claims from a couple dozen to one and but you still got it you no, still got it approved. Yeah, we had actually we didn't quite do that. Let me first say why why doing this and what did we do. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, no mushrooms are harmed. So this is not a natural product. What we're doing is actually developing a capsule which has a synthetic form of the active ingredient psilocybin. Right. And that had never been done. We did, there was, to your point, quote unquote, prior art. People had tried this before. They had done it before. But what they hadn't done is done it to the standards that are required today for medicines. Mm. Obviously, things have changed a bit since I was first done. And they haven't done it. The, the prior art that we looked at was for a very small amount. And when you think about the 100 million, right, it's a lot of people, you need to be able to scale this. Yeah. You have to meet high regulatory standards, making it once is not enough. Yeah. So what we did is we, we actually developed a model and, and an approach. And as we did that, we discovered things that hadn't been discovered before about how to do that at scale, how to do it uh, the highest levels of purity, how to do it in a way it could be made into a medicine, not just a drug. And so in doing all of that, we made discoveries and those discoveries led us to patent. And one of the things that we did was discovered that, you know, when you make this, it's essentially a big crystal. And then there are yeah. special different types of crystal shapes in that. And some of them are better than others. Some of them blow away when you try to turn them into a capsule. That's kind of a, you know, hard. So what we did is we discovered a particular, what's called a polymorph, and we could create that reliably consistent. Mm. And that was the thing that enabled us to create the capsules in a way that were most accurate, effective, and so forth. So what we've done is patented that process and the end product that we were able to create, which hadn't been created before. And yes, you're right. People thought it should be open source. They thought all of those things. Um, in order to create a medicine, in order to get investment at the level that we have, you need to have something that is protectable. 
And so what we did is created that. Uh, you're right, we reduced some of the initial claims, but we now have uh, four approved patents. It's the same thing, but in different countries? No, for all different oh. kinds of things. Okay. So we're doing an incredible amount of early stage research, looking at what other areas could psilocybin be helpful with, specifically our form of psilocybin that we've created. So a huge research program in that, in addition to our clinical research. So. We're doing a lot of work to look at, well, if we go back to this notion of the patterns of thinking, and if there yeah. are ways that we might be able to improve that for people who are suffering with that manifestation, well, is that just in depression or might it also be in anxiety? Might it also be in OCD or in eating disorders, right? Right. So we're doing, you know, lots and lots of research with early stage research, preclinical research to find signals. And when we find signals, then we'll start looking at how to do that work in humans. So this is just a traditional model of how do we help people at scale with a safe and effective medicine. And unfortunately, that doesn't come cheaply. The research is hugely expensive. For sure. Without the patent, do you have a business? Yeah, we have a business, but it is based on not as solid a foundation as what we have. So there are a whole host of things that, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about in terms of, you know, how do you think about keeping people well? How do you prevent relapse? How do you mm -hmm. do all the things that are really critical for patients? And so there are other things that, you know, psilocybin really requires in order to be effective, which is how do you prevent someone from relapsing? And that means we have to know how people are doing. And we see a really interesting thing with a lot of mental health applications, which is people often start them with all sorts of energy, excitement and commitment. But the key challenge for most people who suffer with some of that, you know, where it's anxiety or depression is starting new stuff and maintaining it's kind of hard that's yeah. that's what you're trying to fix so you know yeah. what we found is that a lot of people don't really stick with those things but one of the interesting things of psilocybin therapy is that for many people it also connects them with you know i'm going to change something about my life I'm, I'm not really content with this i see that i've thought about things maybe i could think about them differently maybe i could do things differently and that energy often kind of transpires into people making decisions, whether it's about their diet or about their health or whatever. It's not just about the quote-unquote depression, but they become more engaged in their life. And many mental health challenges are really people who become kind of collapse in and into themselves, and they, they don't engage, right? It's hard mm. to engage. And so this is one of the things that seems to be happening. It's called patient activation, technically. And people seem to be a bit more engaged in that way in their life. So that then leads us to say, well, if you give something once to someone, but we know for some people it's a short act, shorter acting, for some people it's longer acting. The reason we're doing yeah. research is to figure out who's who and if you're benefit at all. So understanding who benefits and for how long. But once you do that, you still have to figure out how do you prevent relapse? Because right. just in depression, when someone relapses, they have less than a 50% chance, this is based on National Institute of Mental Health Research, less than a 50% chance of being helped by what's next. So I've done these other things, now I have to move to something new. And, you know, by the time you get five or six out, well, that's pretty, there's not much it's to do. diminishing now. returns, right? You bet. Right. So, right. so how do you deal with this diminishing returns? 
And for us, it's really looking at how we can use technology to to really help understand what relapse looks like, how to predict it, and of course, hopefully how to prevent it. And so it's not just the therapy I mentioned, which by the way, we didn't get to the last piece, which so is closure on that. After people mm. have the session, they go home that night, then the next day they come back for what we call integration or what's called integrations, mm. in a lot of history. And that's really about integrating what you saw, what you experienced with the rest of your life. And there can be a few sessions of that afterwards uh, with a therapist. And that's where the behavior change comes from, right? So it's great to have insight, but what about behavior change? Right. And so it's linking those two things. And the last thing I should mention, just for everybody who hasn't followed the work, because there's a brilliant question asked at uh, Johns Hopkins, which was six weeks and six months after the experience in their work with cancer patients. The question was this. How personally meaningful was this experience in mm. your life? Was it among the top five or was it even more than that? Yeah. People kind of wondered what it was. And, you know, so this personally meaningful was aligned with, for example, your wedding day yeah. or the birth of your first child or the death of a parent. So we're not just talking about nice time with friends. Yeah. And over 70%, six weeks and virtually the same number six months later said it was in the top five most meaningful experiences of their life this one of their, of their life. six hour of their life and 30 percent said it was the most meaningful and in these mm. studies you know these weren't 20 year olds who didn't have life experience there were you know, people who had a very significant amount of life experience right that's interesting and it's also critically important to have great stewardship around because mm. if you're in this environment, it's a huge responsibility to make sure that you do that. You know, there's a lot to care for here. And there's a huge indication, a huge level of suffering, and a need for really, really responsible science and responsible care. And that's kind of what we're working on. Well, on the, to that point, that's a good segue into um, the legalization in its different forms. And for those who don't know, Oregon was the first state to pass a law that allows psilocybin to be used. I mean, it's it's kind of quite focused and also quite open in that they said basically you can get treatment under professional supervision for depression, anxiety, whatever it may be, but also if you just think you will benefit. It's quite broad. So in other words, if you really want to try this, you can come to a center and you can try it. And they have two years to kind of set all the structures up around this to make this happen. I'm wondering when you talk about, you know, you guys are in phase two, then you still have to do phase three trials. This feels like they're just kind of galloping out ahead of the science to a degree. And I was just wondering how you view that from where you sit. So the first thing we view is that, yeah, it looks like we're not alone in thinking that what's on offer currently from the current tools aren't good enough. And apparently yeah. the majority of voters thought the same thing in Oregon. Obviously, there is this two-year period to figure out how the heck do they go ahead and fulfill this. I think you're right in the sense that, you know, we've been speaking to regulators in over a dozen countries. No regulator who's looked at all the data that exists right now said, oh, okay, no need for clinical trials. Just go for it. Um, <laughs> so, so there is a data gap, right? Yep. And it's a very clear data gap where we just don't know enough at scale 
to provide this and that's why regulators exist regulators exist to make sure people make claims that can be fulfilled because there's a gazillion decades of examples where people get out ahead of the data and make claims that probably will happen here too and so i think that we have to acknowledge that this is a grand social experiment it would be nice to have grand social experiments with data uh, yeah. certainly been advocating for that if this is going to happen. There are huge issues around training therapists. What does the right therapist look like? It's the United States, after all. I'm talking to you from Europe, so it's a little bit uh, easier to look at, but you have litigation risk. So, yeah. you know, what happens if someone has a bad experience? What happens if they came in with the expectation that they'll be cured? Because, you know, you can imagine that kind of claim yep. being made. They're not cured, and then they sue. What's the malpractice? Who are they suing? How do you determine a therapist is capable or not capable? Yeah. By the way, what is the dose of that magic mushroom compared to that magic mushroom? Um, what's the effect? You know, so we have all of these variables, right? And mm. the work in developing a medicine is to try to reduce the variables as much as possible. Try to figure out who exactly, what kind of patient would benefit. Try to understand deeply what is the dose to help. So all of these are unanswered questions. So I think, you know, that's not developing a medicine. That's a broad social experiment. And so our job is to develop this as a medicine that's available globally to as many patients as possibly can. That's a different mission in Oregon right now. And so you're in phase 2B trials. What exactly is that? Like how big is it? How many people? And then what's phase three? So right now, because we take a global view of this global problem, uh, we're at least starting global by transatlantic view. Our clinical trial right now is 216 people receiving a very carefully defined people who've been suffering with depression and had two to four prior medicines and that hasn't worked for them. Right. So they're really looking for something new, something that will work. And we're doing that in 10 countries, 21 different research sites, all different languages, different cultures. And because of yeah. the nature of this, you know, this is what's required, again, with a global vision, a vision of transforming mental health, creating a world of mental well-being, which is what we're about. So the scale is big, right? And that's why the investments are big, et cetera. And it's a global problem. So that's what our trial is. We're looking at three different doses, a one milligram, a 10 milligram, and a 25 milligram. So small, medium, large dose of psilocybin for these people administered with the preparation, the supervision, and the follow-up. And we're seeing, does the 10 work better than the one? Does the 25 work better than the one? Is the difference of better, higher with 25 than 10? Yeah. Are the side effects higher or not? And what you end up with from a regulatory perspective is a view that there's a dose that seems to work that's what they call most tolerable, fewer, fewer side effects. So we're looking for that dose, and that's what we're doing in this study. Once we have it, then we have to say, well, great, can we replicate this? Can we do this over again mm. and get the same results, but with more people, bigger trial? And we need two of those. So that's what phase three is. It's right. demonstrating that you can do it, it replicates, it wasn't just an accident, and that you have a dose that really does work. And you can then, back to my Oregon statement, you can make a claim. You can say, right. for this particular type of patient, this dose administered in this way 
makes a difference this percentage of the time. And here are the side effects. You've seen, you know, there's this fast talking people on American TV at the end of, pharma, you know, so you have all the side effects, you know, and those are all documented too. So that's the process. And, and that's what clinical research requires. It's not what's being done in Oregon, to be clear. So there, that's how it's a very different model. In an ideal world, everything goes swimmingly. When 2025, does, we would hope to be, you know, so ironically, it's about a year after the Oregon thing will come, come up and yeah. be running. So, yeah, I think it'll, it'll be really interesting. And of course, we have to make sure that the phase two works. You know, obviously, there's a lot of promising early research, and sometimes that holds and sometimes it doesn't. We're very hopeful that phase two will be a success and we'll have a clear winner, you know, so that's where we are. What was your worst day of work? It's interesting. I, I'm having a hard time figuring out what worst day at work. Either, the best days at work are easy. I think my worst day at work so far was just seeing media reports that were kind of coming out about our patents and so forth. And mm. just really not having you know it made for interesting reading i guess for some people but yeah there's the mushroom monopolist or whatever yeah the mushroom monopolist you know when i look at what our intention is what our goal is what's driven us from the beginning it's been patient access and there's no amount of wishful thinking no amount of anything that will get that done other than what we've done and we've spent huge amounts of time and energy working Mm. with experts in this area so I think that that was probably the most difficult day at work was just realizing how, I mean, at day's end, we just needed to communicate better and, and help people understand the huge, the goal, the motive, and the huge amount of complexity to do this at a global scale that actually patients can have confidence in. So that was probably my worst day at work. Does the decriminalization movement, let's call it, of marijuana, of psilocybin, of various other drugs. Is that helpful with what you're trying to do? In other words, if, and I know this is kind of an impossible question, but like if that was not happening and there was just like a growing body of studies, academic studies that said, you know what, this is actually, this can actually be quite useful for people who need it in a clinical setting. As opposed to, you know, now I can get weed delivered on a scooter and, you know, all these states are rushing to kind of create businesses around these formerly black markets, et cetera. And it feels like it, there's a chance that, that that just might muddy what you are trying to do. I'm just wondering if you have a view on that. First of all, there are a few things here that are all interwoven. Hmm. So first, decriminalization. This is about not sending people to jail for taking medicines to alter or drugs to alter their consciousness with a form of psychedelics. I don't think that's a good use of legal resources, frankly. So, you know, that just sort of, to me at least, and all I can do is speak for myself, kind of makes sense because people typically are self-medicating or exploring or whatever. So, you know, that's not the best use of societal resources from my point of view. But legalization, you know, as you're seeing with cannabis, I think that these are different substances. So there was an interview with a team at uh, Johns Hopkins. About 10% of people who take these recreationally need some kind of help afterwards. That's a pretty big number, right? Where do they get that help? What if they can't afford that help? What if they are living somewhere where it's simply not available? How do they find the right help? 
so this is, you know, it's a slippery slope in our mind. So we need to have a way and people trained and being able to help with that. So that's, I think, really one aspect. So that's a bit of why I think it, it may be premature to do that. A regulator also mentioned one of the things that really concerned that regulator was if we go to legalization quickly, as happened with cannabis, what happens is the incentive to do the high quality, expensive, difficult clinical research kind of goes out the window. There's a cannabis uh, a medicine company that developed CBD called GW Pharma for epilepsy. Oh, yeah. I've written about them in the oh, back when I lived in London. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So, so GW has gone through this long, arduous path, and they have medicine that really, really helps. It's a very pure, very specific form of mm -hmm. CBD that's much more concentrated than anything you can buy anywhere else. Now, they developed that as a medicine. But there aren't a lot of people who find access to capital to do that. And so the question is, when these things get, quote unquote, legalized early, do they actually create a market where people will try that? They may have difficulty and then even worse, it disincentivizes research. And right. these substances are so promising. We really don't want to do that in my mind. And then lastly, and I'll let you go because I know I've taken up a lot of your time. But when you were talking about decriminalization, it made me think about, okay, so these are still federally, I can't remember what it is, Schedule 1 or Schedule Class one. A, yeah, narcotics. And then you're, theoretically, in 2025, you'll have something that is psilocybin that is a treatment. How do you negotiate basically getting something out in the world that is, the federal government says, is an illegal drug? And I presume that's the case in, is it Class A in the UK? Class A. Yeah, no, it's global, right? So it's a UN convention. So the good news is it's made pretty easy because what leads something to be Schedule um, 1 or Class A is two things. A high potential for misuse and no evidence of medical benefit. If you get oh, both of those things, you're in that. Now, when you have clinical trials that demonstrate evidence of medical benefit, automatically that medicine is rescheduled not the drug, the medicine. Right. A medicine is a drug plus evidence. That's what a medicine, a medicine is defined globally. Drug plus evidence that it's safe and effective. So the drug typically will stay Schedule 1. We see this with cannabis and, and GW. GW's medicine is not Schedule 1, but I think the UN just changed it uh, last week or something. But when you develop the evidence, it automatically is required to move into a different schedule. I see. Well, that sounds easy enough. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Uh, hundreds of people. And uh, it's, um, you know, this is a very geeky, technically sweet, technically challenging area to develop trials at this size. But we've just been amazed by the quality of the institute, leading institutions around the world working with us and really incredibly grateful for the dedication of people on this. And the phase three, that would be hundreds more or thousands before, because that's obviously the last phase. So it's usually more, but so it's dependent. If this is like super effective, then you need fewer people. If yeah. it's sort of, well, it looks a little better than other things, you need more people. So right. we won't know the answer to that million-dollar question uh, until probably the end of next year, which is when we'll be reporting out the Phase 2 trials, assuming COVID doesn't run rampant, and we're optimistic yeah. that it won't. So. Got you. 
Well, I wish you luck. We'll have you back on as things move along. And um, yeah, I wish you luck. I think it's it's really interesting. It's a long road you've chosen. Well, it's a huge problem. And what else could we be working on that would be a better use of our time? Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much for taking the you time. Bet. I, I thank you, Danny. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank George for taking the time to talk. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I find it really kind of amazing. Obviously, they've got a lot of wood to chop before this becomes real, but I'll be watching closely what happens in in Oregon and with them, and, you know, hopefully it works, because as George said, the current options don't work for a lot of people, so more options the better. Anyhow, that is it for this week. Please check out what I'm up to in the paper this weekend at times.co.uk, and we're writing about lots of interesting stuff. I'll leave you on a cliffhanger about what it is. Just check it out. Thank you for the ratings and reviews. It's really awesome. really helps other people find the show. And I will be back next week, which I believe is the last episode of 2020. Insane. Um, but we'll do maybe we can do a little bit of a roundup. I can read out some of the uh, ratings and reviews and give you guys a big shout out and lots of love for listening all year long in this craziest of years. Anyhow, stay safe, stay sane. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.